The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Hear the word of our Lord. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, just while you're getting settled and we're getting ready to begin um, in this begin to get into the preaching, the message. Um, I did want to also make known, I forgot to mention whenever I brought up Greg, that uh, there are some who are going to be fasting and praying for him tomorrow. Um, and the, it was asked that I would make that invitation known for any of you also to, to fast and pray for him uh, tomorrow during his surgery. Um, Great opportunities uh, to seek the Lord on behalf of great needs that we have in this body. And uh, we're looking at fasting, so here's, here's an opportunity to practice what we're looking at. So yeah, don't feel obligated to do that, but if, if you would, the Lord would lead you to do that for Greg's sake and for the sake of the Lord's glory in his life. Vicki and Sarah, would you please join those who will be fasting? Well, in light of that, we are currently looking at fasting as a tool that God has provided to help us grow in grace. And um, it's important to make clear that when we're talking about the means of grace or uh, these tools that we can use to grow in grace, what we are not talking about is using these tools to earn God's grace. Right? We're not talking about doing something in order to gain favor with God. Uh, nor are we uh, seeking uh, to accomplish anything in that fast for uh, the sake of our own goodness or righteousness or anything like that. We're not trying to gain God's favor by using the means of grace. These are simply means that God has appointed in order to increase our understanding of his grace and his love that has been promised to us in Christ and secured for us by Christ. And then also in increasing our understanding, using these means of grace in order to further the impact that God's grace has in our lives. So they are tools that are designed by God to bring us to the point where we understand more about the nature of his grace. We understand more about what it means for God to declare himself to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We, we use these means of grace of digging into the word and studying and meditating upon it and coming to the Lord's table as an expression of God's great love for us in Christ giving his son. We, we come to prayer as, as a means of, of stirring up our hearts and renewing our minds in the truth. And here we come to fasting in order to clarify our minds so that we can more clearly perceive what the grace of God truly is. And it's in having a better understanding of the nature of God's grace that we will also experience a greater impact in our lives from that grace. <clears throat> So I just wanted to clarify, we're not using these means of grace as a means of earning God's grace. Um, we are using them as a means of better understanding his grace so that it might have a greater effect in our lives. And fasting is one of the means God has established to accomplish this goal in the lives of those who are clinging to him with sincere faith. And so as we use this gift of fasting to pursue our God and faith, he grants the reward of that goal being accomplished in us, which is a greater knowledge and experience of his rich grace in Jesus Christ. 
Now, when we think about the nature of fasting, it's important to understand that fasting in its essence, we're talking about what we're doing when we're fasting. What we're doing is simply exercising self-denial. At the heart of it, whenever we fast, we are exercising self-denial. We're denying ourselves of something that we desire and even of something that we need. And the practice of self-denial, as many of you will acknowledge, is very important for the Christian life. In fact, John Calvin would define the entire Christian life really as, as one exercise in self-denial. It's one opportunity to deny yourself after another as you seek after the Lord. But what we need to remember is that when we are practicing, especially when we're practicing fasting, and we are engaging in this practice of self-denial, we are doing so for a purpose. It's not self-denial for the sake of self-denial. When we're fasting, we are fasting uh, for the purpose of being more focused and less distracted in our pursuit of a deeper fellowship and communion with God. We are fasting for the sake of having a deeper fellowship and communion with our God. Removing distractions, removing hindrances, denying things of ourselves so that our conception and perception and understanding of pursuit, in our pursuit of the Lord would be clarified. Now, as we saw last week, there are different circumstances and situations for fasting. There are even different kinds of fasts that we can use. But we need to remember that at the heart of all true fasting is the simple desire to pursue a greater fellowship with God in the midst of the circumstance about which we are fasting. You follow that? What we are seeking whenever we are driven by the Spirit of God to fast for some particular reason or on some unique occasion, what we are doing is we are seeking a greater fellowship and communion with God in that situation or in that circumstance that we're facing. This is why Dr. John Piper titled his book on fasting, A Hunger for God. And the subtitle is Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer. I don't agree with everything that Brother Piper says, and I, it seems that I'm making that statement more and more as time goes on. But when it comes to fasting, this book hits the nail squarely on the head. What is fasting really all about? What's the purpose and the point of engaging in a fast? Well, Piper says it's about hungering for God. It's about desiring God through prayer and fasting. It's, it's, it's expressing a longing and a yearning and a, and a desire for God to manifest himself, to come and show himself mighty and strong and adequate and sufficient in whatever circumstance we are bothered about. As we walk through this life, we're going to be confronted with trial. We're going to be confronted with opposition. Our hearts are going to be broken. We're going to deal with sickness and pain. We're going to have news like what we got over Helen. We're going to have news like what we're getting over Greg and, and Becky and everything else. We're going to have hardship in this life. Those hardships are designed to do one thing. They're designed to make us long and yearn and hunger more after God, who is the answer to all of our problems in this life. And so when we have these desperate situations come upon us that call us to fast, really what we are doing in those times is saying, Lord, I can't get through this on my own. I don't have enough strength to face this challenge. I need you to come. And as we're going to see, the promise is that when we use fasting for the right reasons and in the right way, the promise is that the Lord will hear us and he will reward our pursuit of him. So really, in, in its essence, true fasting is not just merely self-denial. It's not simply choosing not to eat. It's denying yourself for the purpose of expressing your deepest longings and hunger and yearnings after God. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this uh, about fasting. He said, fasting is the denial of everything that interferes with intimate, direct fellowship between us and God. 
We may have our symbol of fasting, he goes on to say, if we like. We may have the symbol of it in the day in which we eat no food, but that is by no means essential. What he means by that, it's, that's not the essence of what fasting is really all about. It's not simply choosing not to eat food. Rather, he says, fasting is a matter far deeper, far profounder. It is the life suffering the loss, even of rights, in order that it may come into a more strenuous relationship with God. Love that quote. I thought that that really captured what we're getting at when we're talking about the purpose of fasting. It's about deepening our relationship with the Lord. Now that's what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Here he tells us that fasting is not merely about abstaining from food, nor is it merely about going through the ritual. It is about drawing near to God. It's about doing something with a pure heart and a sincere faith that is reaching out to God in order to get his attention. And it comes with the reward, Jesus says, which is the reward of his approval, the reward of his good opinion, and the reward of his blessing. And so Jesus teaches us about fasting here in Matthew 6 so that we'll understand how and why God wants us to use it and so that we will be encouraged to know that if we practice fasting according to God's will, we will, in our fasting, discover the rich blessing of God. Okay. So that's where we're going today. Our main outline, three main points. If you want to write these down, you're welcome to. Uh, first of all, we're fasting, or we're going to look at fasting for the wrong reason, as Jesus addresses it here. Secondly, fasting for the right reason. And then thirdly, fasting for the reward. So that's where we're heading. Would you pray with me as we dig into this more? Father, you are our joy and your nearness is our good. Lord, I thank you that you will humble us using any means necessary to remind us that we have no good in this life apart from you. Our own heart and our own flesh will fail. Lord, we will, in the end, each one of us, apart from your coming, we will inevitably succumb to the weakness of our own heart and flesh. Lord, our bodies will give out. We cannot keep ourselves alive. And Father, as the psalmist recognized, you bring us to points like that so that we would recognize and then confess that you, O oh Lord, apart from anything else in this world, you are our portion. God, I pray this morning that you would come. Lord, remove all pretense of religion here. Remove the facade. Lord, pull back the mask for each one of us. But deal with us for the sake of Christ. Father, if you don't bless this time and make this time accomplish the end for which you have purposed it, then all that we do here today will be in vain. So I pray that you would renew our hearts this morning, stir up our affections, increase our love, strengthen our faith. Lord, and do so by exalting the glory of your beloved Son. Lord, we need Jesus and we need the hope of Jesus and we need the guarantee and the security that we belong to Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. 
But please, Lord, work in our hearts to that end this morning. And build this body up to be a bright and shining beacon for the sake of the gospel in this town, in this city. Father, as a result of this morning, we pray that you would cause the glory of your name to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And would you begin right here with us this morning? Let the glory of your name cover us, Lord. May we be enveloped in it and find in you our greatest joy and our hope of life. Lord, please, please do this for your sake, for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, the first thing I want to look at in Matthew 6 is what Jesus says about fasting for the wrong reason. Matthew 6.16, Jesus says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Now here Jesus begins to teach us about fasting by telling us what not to do. In essence, we are not to fast like hypocrites. You know, Jesus had and has great patience for sinners. For many different kinds of sinners. When we look in the Gospels, we see that Jesus has a tremendous amount of patience and grace and even mercy towards adulterers, towards fornicators, towards prostitutes and harlots. Jesus dealt with them very graciously in calling them out of their sin and into the pastures of his grace. We see in the gospel accounts that Jesus dealt even with greedy and devious tax collectors with much patience, like Zacchaeus. We see that Jesus dealt patiently with those who still had doubts, like doubting Thomas, right? He even had great patience and gentleness towards those who flat out denied him in moments of temptation. Think of Peter and the rest of the eleven on the night when our Lord was betrayed. Were they standing firm with him? No, they were not. They actually denied him. And yet, what do we find after Christ's resurrection? What does Jesus do for them? He comes to them. And he pronounces over them the blessing of peace. Now, if that's not a picture of patience and gentleness with sinners, I don't know what else would be. The Lord is very kind and very patient with many different kinds of sinners. But there is one sin that our Lord never shows patience with. There is one sin that he cannot tolerate. And that is the sin of hypocrisy. I've heard this phrase so often. And every time I hear it, my stomach wants to, my stomach turns and I just want to throw up. I get so nauseated whenever I hear people say, You know, you're talking to someone and they say, well, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. And then the other person who's trying to get them to come to church says, well, yeah, come on and join the club. It's like, yeah. Really? Is that that really your view of the glory of regeneration? Is that really what you think about the the power of the gospel in the life of a believer? Or I should say it this way, is that really what you think about the lack of the power of the gospel in the life of a believer? Do you think that the gospel is not powerful enough to deal with hypocrisy? Do you really believe that the church of Jesus Christ is a gathering of hypocrites? That's blasphemous, guys. The way that we see Jesus dealing with hypocrisy in the Gospels, do you think he would let that run amok in his church? I'm not angry, but I just get so sickened by that kind of mentality because all that's revealing to us is that we don't understand the Gospel. 
We have such a shallow view of what it means to be a Christian. And then when someone actually starts living the Christian life, we all look at them and we say, oh man, look at this guy. He's trying to be super spiritual over here. When in fact, all that person is doing is trying to be faithful to Jesus. You know, people who say that, people who think that way, ought to check their own lives and see if they're actually a believer. Because if seeing someone else run headlong after the Lord, run strong and firm and with a great endeavor to reach after Him, a true believer, when they see someone running like that, it doesn't cause them to feel shame as much as it encourages them to run with them. They see a believer running after the Lord. All they want to do is say, oh man, I want to run with you. They don't try to cut them down or demean them by saying, oh man, that guy, yeah, he's just one of those goody two-shoes. He's just trying to be perfect. It's like, no, get, get your mind right. Renew your mind in the scriptures, guys. Jesus had patience with so many different kinds of sinners, but the one sin he could not abide was hypocrisy. In fact, we see in Luke 12, verse 1, that he warns us as his people. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. Now, right there, it shows me that Jesus does not assume that hypocrisy will be a normal part of the lives of his people. He, in fact, tells them this is your greatest danger, or at least this is one of your great dangers you need to be, you need to be on guard against. Be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of it. Stand on guard against it. Do not let it infect you in the slightest, is what Jesus is saying here. It's like leaven. And you know what happens when you put leaven in dough? Eventually, what happens? All the dough is affected by the leaven, right? It doesn't stay isolated. It doesn't stay localized in one particular part of the dough. Eventually, over time, that leaven will work itself through the entire lump. Jesus says hypocrisy in the life of his people will be just like that. If you let it in, in the slightest, it will eventually work itself through every area of your life. So he warns us, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of hypocrisy. And so when it comes to fasting, Jesus explaining to us how to use fasting, he begins by warning us against hypocrisy in the way that we use fasting. Now, what is a hypocrite? If we're going to understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to understand what a hypocrite is, right? Well, the word for hypocrite in Greek comes from the arena of the theater. You guys have heard me share this before. In Greek society, originally a hypocrite was simply a play actor. Right, Corbin? Can I share that with people? Sure. Those of you who don't know, Corbin was in acting. Still a little bit. So originally, if Corbin were still acting head on, you know, uh, full on, we would call him in Greek society a hypocrite. Look at that hypocrite. <laughs> I repent. No, that's where the word in Greek comes from. It comes from the arena of the theater. It was simply a play actor or a role player is what the word hypocrite originally meant. Now, eventually this word was used metaphorically to describe someone who was a pretender, right? Someone who was fake, someone who was false, who wasn't genuine. They eventually began to be called hypocrites. Now that is what Jesus is warning us about here when he calls us to be careful to make sure that we are not pretending or play acting whenever we engage in fasting. Don't be a hypocrite when you fast. Don't play around. Jesus explains what he means by being a hypocrite when we fast by painting a picture for us. And he uses an illustration that was most common in the days of his earthly ministry. Right? It's, it, this isn't only the only situation where this applies, but he is using this as an illustration to show what hypocrisy in fasting looks like. In verse 16, he says, uh, the hypocrites fasted by putting on a gloomy face. 
just like an actor, right? In Greek society back then, they didn't have all the makeup and the props and stuff like that, so what would they do whenever they had different roles to play? Well, they would have different masks, right? They would have a mask for this role and a mask for that role, and whenever they changed their roles in the midst of the play, they would put a different mask on. And that mask was symbolizing the character that they were playing, right? That's what Jesus is saying the hypocrites do whenever they fast with hypocrisy. They are simply taking fasting and putting it on like a mask, right? They're putting this gloomy face on them to show everybody that they are playing the role of the faster, He goes on to say, they, to describe that, they put on gloomy faces and or for they neglect their appearance, he says. In other words, they're simply making a show of it, right? For them, it was not about seeking God. For them, it was not about gaining God's attention or God's blessing or having their voice heard on high. It was not a true expression of hearts that were yearning after the Lord. It was merely a facade. Now, why did they do this? Jesus gives us that answer. He says they do this for one simple reason. They do this so that they will be noticed by men. So why go through all the theatrics, right? Why, in a sense, paint themselves up to look a certain way? Well, they do it simply for the attention of other people, or they do it to impress other people to secure the approval of other people, to gain their good thoughts, and to have the good opinions of men in relation to them. I don't know anyone like that. Do you? Literally, this section of this verse, you could translate this more literally in saying they, they uh, neglect their appearances so that they will appear to be fasting before men. And that is the essence of hypocrisy. It's not that hypocrites actually want to be spiritual. Because being truly spiritual and truly godly costs way too much. Right? You have to give up the things you love in the world as a hypocrite. You've got to devote yourself to a disciplined life. You have to seek after the Lord when it's hard. You have to endure trial and all these things. And that's just too much for the hypocrite. That's more than what they're willing to pay in order to have a genuine walk with the Lord. However... Though they don't necessarily truly want to be spiritual, they do truly want to be seen as spiritual, right? They don't actually want to be godly, but they do want other people to think that they are godly. And for those who seek to use God's precious and holy means of grace the means that he has appointed for the purpose of spiritual communion with him, right? Those who want to use those means as a way of gaining glory for themselves instead of using it in order to seek after the Lord. Jesus says, all their religion may amount to a lot in the eyes of the world, but they will receive their full reward in this life and have nothing for the Father from it. All their religion may amount to a lot in the eyes of the world. They will receive a full reward for their religious exercises in this life. They will be satisfied with things in this life and the attention they will get from people in this life. But Matthew 6.1, Jesus says they will have no reward with their Father who is in heaven. To quote G. Campbell Morgan again, he says, If we fast that men may be impressed with our religious devotion... We have our reward, but it is not in his kingdom. Thus, the king denounces as unworthy all religious acting, which is inspired by the opinion of men. Now, I know that we are talking about fasting right now, but doesn't that principle apply over every area of our lives? Have you ever thought to ask yourself, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I go to church? Why do I read the Bible? Why do I try to pray? Why do I help my neighbor? Why do I try and be a good worker? 
If you spend enough time thinking through the whys behind all that you do, you will begin to realize just how much you actually do for the approval of man rather than to please God. Right? Probably the most dangerous area of my life in relation to this is right here. I get to get up in front of all of you, right, and wow you with my wisdom. Are you wowed? <laughs> no, don't answer that. I'm kidding. Yeah, I don't need that discouragement. No. It's dangerous. And the reality is, is that the seeds of hypocrisy are present in everything that we do. Right? When we're talking about even things like instructing our families, having family devotions, why do you do that? Do you do it so that other people will look in on your family and say, man, that's a spiritual family? Or maybe the kind of homes that we live in, the houses that we buy. Why do you buy the house that you buy? Why do you live in the neighborhood in which you live? Is the governing principle what everyone else is going to think about you or what your family will think about you? Or is the governing principle that this is where the Lord's called me to be? And I'm here for his pleasure. The cars we buy, the clothes we wear, the schools we attend, the jobs that we choose. How much of those things are actually more governed by the opinions and, and seeking the approval of those around us rather than seeking the approval of God? Homeschooling, right? How many of you are homeschoolers in here? Most of you. Why do you do homeschooling? Is it because you, genuine, you genuinely believe that that's what the Lord would have you do? Or are you doing it because you don't want everyone else who does homeschool to look down on you? Right? I remember this even whenever we were having our first child. We really wanted a natural birth. I probably wanted it more than Jamie. <laughs> and when we found out that we couldn't have a natural birth, I felt shame. Like, I can't tell all of my friends who had the natural birth, you know, at home in, the, in whatever the pool was, no epidural. I couldn't tell all my friends, hey, by the way, we actually have to go into a hospital. Jamie has to have surgery. They got to cut our baby out. You know, we're not going to miss it. We're going to miss out on that. You know, the whole thing behind that had nothing to do with really wanting to do what the Lord would have us do. It had everything to do with everyone else's opinion of what we should do. Right? And the Lord brought us, thankfully, to the point where we had to repent of that. I guess my point in that is just simply saying hypocrisy, the seeds of hypocrisy can be in absolutely everything that we do. And if we allow the desire for the attention of men to govern our actions in relation to anything in life, then whatever we are doing, it may find the approval in the eyes of every single other person around you, but it will never find the approval of God. Because it's not ultimately be done, being done for him. I remember probably the greatest example, now I'm starting to meander, but I remember probably the greatest example of hypocrisy and fasting comes from my own life. The year that I was saved, it was 2003, September 2003, when the Lord saved me. That next fall, the pastor of that church, I didn't know this at the time, but I realized that that, uh, that or not the fall, every spring, he would engage in a 40-day fast. Now, it wasn't like a real fast. It was juicing. It was taking all kinds of supplements and stuff like that. But it wasn't like a Jesus kind of fast. You know what I mean? But he would fast for 40 days. And every year, they would put up a calendar on the wall of one of the hallways, sectioning out those 40 days in which Pastor Steve would be fasting so that anyone else in the church could write their name down on that calendar and join him in fasting on a certain day. Right? Now, I thought... There were some genuine motives here, okay? It wasn't all bad. I went up with a genuine desire to fast with my pastor, to join him in that. But when I got up there, and I started writing my name on one day in that 40-day period, and realized all the people around me were watching me, I thought, hmm, am I going to look very spiritual if I only put one day down in relation to the 40 days? And so I did what anyone else would do. I put the next Friday down, and I put my name there too. 
And I thought, well, wait a second. I see other names here that have multiple days with their names, so I'm going to go ahead and go for a third one. And eventually, I think I got up to like five Fridays that I had signed up my name. And as I'm writing my name, I can feel the eyes of everyone around me beginning to glow with admiration. Like, oh, man, look at this spiritual kid right here. Man, he's only like 16, and look how devoted he is. You know what happened of, that, of, of all those fasts that I said that I would commit to? I didn't finish a single one. You know why I didn't finish any of those fasts? Because I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. Ultimately, I was doing it to serve the idol of self. And you know what? As a Christian, the idol of self has been put to death. It's no longer strong enough to motivate me to do godly things. And so when those godly things begin to conflict with the idol of self, which one's going? Well, both in the Christian life. And you repent. <laughs> but my point is simply that that's probably one of, the, one of the realest examples of hypocrisy and fasting that I've ever read about or heard about or experienced. Just that calendar. Right? Writing it down for the approval of men, but not engaging in that fast for the sake of the Lord. You know, Jesus had something to say about those who seek glory from men and do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God. You know what he said about that? He said they cannot believe. People who live by that principle do not have true faith. John 5.44, if you can skip ahead to that. Jesus said, how can you believe to the Pharisees, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? How can you believe if that's your governing principle, if that's your motivation, who are you really living for? You're not living for God. You're living for what everyone else will say about you. You're living for glory and admiration and honor and approval of men. You are not living for the approval of God. Therefore, how can you believe? You can't have true faith is what Jesus is saying, if that's your governing principle. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 1.10. He said, we cannot be living for the good opinion of men and still expect to find the blessing of God. For if I were still seeking to be a servant of men, Paul says, if I were still laboring in order to have a good opinion among men, then I would not be a servant of Christ. That's a pretty straightforward statement. And all this is simply saying that you cannot have both in the Christian life. You cannot live for the approval of men and still be living for the sake of God. That would be hypocrisy. And so in our fasting, Jesus says, we must guard against this principle of hypocrisy, which is nothing less than turning a means of seeking fellowship with God and his grace into a means of gaining glory for ourselves and satisfying our own self-centered desires. Rather than fasting for the wrong reason, Jesus would have us make sure that we're fasting for the right reason. If we would find the blessing of our Heavenly Father in our fasting, then we must guard against fasting for the wrong reason and make sure that we are fasting for the right reason. As Jesus puts it here in verse 18, Matthew 6, it's not, we don't fast in order to gain the attention of men, but rather we are to be fasting in order to be noticed by our Father who is in secret. So we fast in order not in order to gain the attention of others or to serve our own self-centered desires, but we fast simply for this reason, to get the attention of our Heavenly Father. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on this too much, but I want you just to think about what that statement means for our understanding of how God wants us to walk with Him. And how he wants us to relate to him as we live out the Christian life. God has designed, in other words, he has designed and he has purposed fasting to be a way by which we express our desperate desire for him to take notice of us. 
not for the sake of men, not for the approval of men, not to gain a good name for ourselves among men or in the church, but to get the attention of our Heavenly Father. Now that ought to astound us in light of the Scripture's teaching on the absolute, unqualified, unmitigated sovereignty of God. In a real sense, and with absolute confidence, we can affirm that the Lord will do whatever He wants to do in our lives and in this world. He will accomplish His ends. We know that. And we can confess the truth that God, who is all-knowing and always present, is also always aware of where we are and what's going on and what we need. That's why Jesus said, when we pray, don't lay up a bunch of empty phrases trying to get God to do something for you. God already knows what you need before you ask. God knows where we're at. He knows what's going on. He's always paying attention to us. But I want you to look at what Jesus is saying here. According to Jesus, fasting is a tool that God has appointed to be a means of getting his attention. Now that is astounding to me. That the God who always knows me and always sees me has placed something in my hands with the promise that when I use it rightly, I will get his attention in a special way. I think what I'm getting at here is above anything else, what this shows me is that God truly wants me to pursue him. Think about that. If the purpose of fasting is to get the attention of God, what does that mean? That means God wants me to pursue his attention. Just like in prayer, when we talked about the door seeming like it's closed and we're knocking on that door. When we're asking the question and there doesn't seem to be an answer, we're continuing to ask that question. The same with fasting. God has designed fasting to be something that we use in order to, to run Him down, to seek Him out. He wants us to live in such a way that it gains His special attention. We see this principle all throughout Scripture. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. See that language, the Lord looking, the Lord searching, the Lord being ready to bless those who are turning to him in genuine faith. Second Chronicles 15.2, if we take up the means of pursuing our Lord, then we have the promise that if we seek him, he will let us find him. That's the promise behind the means of grace. If we seek him in these ways, the Lord swears, you will find me. I will let you find me. Do you believe my promise? Yes. Jesus says that's the purpose behind our fasting. We are fasting in order to seek him. And we have the promise that if we seek him, we will find him. I, when I typed that out, I, I just the, the phrase that was coming to my mind was the romance of the Christian life. The romance of walking with God through the Christian life. Do you know that romance? Maybe that's not the right word you would want, maybe it's not the word you would want me to use, but do you, do you know that living, active pursuit and interaction with the Lord that accompanies your walk with Him through this life? So what Jesus is, is, is really driving at here in fasting and how we're to use fasting and the reason behind our fasting this is really picturing and painting for us the adventure that it really is to walk with the Lord and to seek his face. We're seeking after something that we're not yet experiencing. We don't have in our hand at the moment, but we're pursuing the Lord with the promise that if we seek him, we will have it. This is, it's this seeking out, it's this endeavor, this searching after something. That's what the Christian life is. And fasting is one of the ways that our Heavenly Father wants us to pursue Him. As I've said, one of the ways He's 
appointed for us to get his attention. Now that gets to the point that our main motivation in fasting must always be Godward. Right? We are fasting not for anything other than seeking the Lord. Now I want to point out a couple of things in Jesus' instructions that help us make sure that we're doing this. Help us learn how to use fasting in order to get the attention of our Heavenly Father. First of all, Jesus calls us to be fasting in secret. That is, we are to purpose and, 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 and govern our fast in a way that does not draw other people's attention to it. Hypocrites purposefully put on a gloomy face and they make it appear to everyone else that they are those who are seeking the Lord. In a sense, they take what should be kept as a special and secret and holy pursuit of God in our lives and they exploit it in order to gain glory with men. But Jesus says to us, if we would truly sanctify a fast unto the Lord and seek his blessing and to do so for his attention, then we must guard our practice of fasting and keep it hidden away with God in the secret place. He says, when you fast, verse 17, don't neglect your appearance so that everyone knows what you're doing. Rather, anoint your head and wash your face. Anointing the head and washing the face, that was a common everyday practice among the Jews. They would do that every morning when they woke up. They would wash their face and they would anoint themselves with oil to keep their skin from drying out in the dry heat. Right? The, the wind, when it would blow, you know what it means to get chapped and dry skin. It hurts. They would anoint themselves with oil. It was just a normal part of their everyday practice. And Jesus says, when we are devoting ourselves to seeking the blessing of our Heavenly Father in fasting... Basically, we are just to keep doing normal things. We don't need to go on a pilgrimage. We don't need to go out to some mountain in order to fast for the Lord or to consecrate a true seeking of Him in fasting. We don't need to disfigure our face and let everyone else know what's going on or even let God know what's going on by how we disfigure our face or allow our appearance to, to, to fall away to the, to the wayside. Jesus says, when you are fasting, just keep doing what you normally do. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but rather by your Father in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you, Jesus says. Now in this, I hear, and I hope you hear, this desire on God's part to have a real and intimate and deep and genuine relationship with you. This is why the Father sent His Son. This is why God the Father sanctified the Son and sent Him into this dark and decrepit and condemned world. It's why He smothered His Holy Son with our sin and, and caused His Son to absorb the holy wrath of God in our place. It was so that God could have an intimate and glorious fellowship with sinners like us again. It's the hope of the gospel to have this reconciled relationship, right? God sent forth His Son in order to bring us into intimate, loving, grace-filled, compassionate, laden relationships with Him. And I know that it can sound absurd. I felt whenever I wrote this that it's just cliche, but I think you really need to hear, and you need to, you need to hear this from me more often. Beloved, God loves you. Like, he, he really does love you. Do you know that? He's not ready to pounce on you. He's not waiting on you to earn His favor. He really does unqualifiedly love you. Is that a real word? I don't know. But in an unconditional manner, the Father loves you. He has a desire to have you. Do you know that? He jealously yearns over the spirit he's made to dwell within us, James 4 says. He has a desire to be near to us. He has a desire to dote upon us. Did you know that? 
Zephaniah 3, he has a desire to quiet us in his love. You remember how he describes his people in Isaiah 62, 5? He says, if you are one who is drawing near to God by faith in his son, then God speaks this word over you. He says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. Do you really believe that God rejoices over you? It's not even that he just begrudgingly will receive you. It's that he rejoices to have you. He doesn't just put up with us, beloved. He delights in us. And you need to take that understanding with you when you go into the secret place and practice fasting. The God who wants to be near you. The God whose desire is for you. The God who wants to quiet you in his love and calls you his beloved bride in his son. When you reciprocate that expression of his love by drawing near to him and fasting. And you keep it hidden away from the eyes of the world so that it's only something that's being done between you and your God. God will be more than pleased to bless that attempt at seeking his face. If he loves you, if he loves you, truly loves you, and he's brought you into that love in Christ, then when you reciprocate that love, when you turn back to him and express your love and desire for him in fasting, then the Lord will be pleased to anoint that fast. And to pour his blessing upon you. So that's one thing that we should do in order to guard and protect our fasting for the sake of the Lord. We do it in secret. We do it as a holy exercise that is kept simply between our God and ourselves. A second thing that we need to do in order to learn how to cultivate a godly practice of fasting And that is simply by doing it. You notice in verse 17, Jesus says, when you fast. Verse 16, when you fast. In that, we see Jesus is calling for us simply to be those who practice fasting for the attention of our God. Now, I say that to say, to, to get to this, I can give you guidance on fasting. I can point you to the scriptures and tell you what God's word has to say about fasting, when to use fasting, the different kinds of fast that you are permitted to use. I can even tell you Christ's instructions on using fasting, but I cannot tell you exactly how to do it. As I was talking with a brother on Friday, I thought that uh, about this very issue, I thought to myself that this, this, this issue of learning how to fast is really something that the Lord holds in reserve. He chooses, it's something that he chooses only to teach us by the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts when we devote ourselves to actually practicing it. It's like doing evangelism, right? How many of you want to be better at doing evangelism? I hope you all put your hand up, right? We all have room to grow in that regard. You know, you learn how to do evangelism not by studying a bunch of books on it, right? Not by working yourself up into an attitude of going out and being bold and witnessing for Christ. No, you learn how to do evangelism by evangelizing. It's in the act of evangelizing that the Lord begins to teach you how to evangelize. It's like praying, right? I can tell you what Jesus wants you to pray. I can give you some guidance on how you should go about applying that. But I can't actually teach you how to pray with the Lord in the secret place. That is something that you have to go discover for yourself. Right? Add another one. It's like believing. Having faith. I can teach you what it looks like when you have faith. I can show you examples in scripture of people actually expressing their faith and exercising their faith, but I cannot tell you how to believe. That is something that God has to teach you, and you have to go to God in order to learn it. 
It's the same way with fasting. I can give you general principles, but this is something that you have to discover for yourself in your pursuit of the Lord. You have to go to God and have direct dealings with Him if you're going to learn how to use fasting in order to seek His face. So we do it in secret, but we also just do it. Right? That's Jesus' instructions here. Now thirdly, as we end, what is the reward of fasting? What reward should we be expecting whenever we come to God? Jesus says in verse 18, he gives us a promise that when we are fasting and using this means of fasting the way we ought to use it, Jesus promises us that the Father will reward us. Now the question is, what is that reward? What's that? Oh, if I could hear you, I'd maybe be able to say intimacy with, intimacy with him, closeness to him. Yeah, in essence, the reward is God, right? The reward is God himself. It's a greater fellowship with God himself. It is knowing the riches of his strength when we are fasting in light of our weaknesses. It is knowing in greater depth his love and his compassion and his mercy when we are fasting in light of our failures. It's knowing in greater ways the satisfaction of God's comfort when we are mourning the loss of a loved one or we are mourning over the state of our own hearts. It's knowing in fuller measure the presence and the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit when we are seeking to understand his dealings with us in greater ways. It is growing in our understanding of the true power and the hope of the gospel. Learning to have greater separation from the world. Seeking a greater consecration unto our God. Seeking to accomplish his cause and his purposes in this world. Having the blessing of success as we seek to do his will. All of these things are the blessings, the reward that accompanies fasting. But in every single one of those blessings, the blessing is God himself. And as Joy said, greater fellowship and communion with him. So in short, the reward of fasting is an expansion of our sense of true and living fellowship with God in those circumstances and situations that have led us to seek him with fasting in the first place. And I want to end today with an example and an encouragement of someone who discovered the blessing of fasting for himself. Many of you have read the diary of David, David Brainerd. And uh, there's one section in that diary that I wanted to read as an encouragement for us to press after the Lord in fasting. This is Monday, April 19th. I believe it was 1742. David Brainerd says, I set this day, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to God for his grace, especially to prepare me for the work of the ministry, to give me divine aid and direction in my preparations for that great work, and in his own time to send me into the harvest. You hear that heart just yearning, longing for God and for God's will. He says, accordingly, in the morning, I endeavored to plead for the divine presence for the day and not without some life. In the forenoon, I felt the power of intercession for precious immortal souls, for the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in the, in the world. And with all a most sweet resignation and even consolation and joy in the thoughts of suffering hardships and distresses and even death itself in the promotion of his kingdom. I had a special enlargement in pleading for the enlightening and conversation of the poor heathen. In the afternoon, God was with me in truth. Oh, it was blessed company indeed. God enabled me to so agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with perspiration, though in the shade and in the cool wind. My soul was drawn out very much for the world, for the multitudes of souls. I think I had more enlargement for sinners than for the children of God in that moment. Though I felt as if I could spend my life in cries for both. 
He says, I enjoyed great sweetness in communion with my dear Savior. I think I never in my life felt so entirely weaned from this world and so much resigned to God in everything. Oh, that I may always live in and to and upon my blessed God. Amen and amen. I read that and I thought to myself, may we all know that kind of blessing in our pursuit of God and fasting. And as a result, may we be those who enjoy great sweetness with our Savior. May we be always living to and living upon our blessed God. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we see this as the end of fasting, Lord, this seeking of you in light of the promise of finding you. Lord, of uh, purposing to take away distractions and focus our efforts to draw near to you in light of the promise that you've made to us that you will draw near to us. Lord, we know you yearn, we know you long for your people. You are zealous for them and jealous over them. And so please help us, Lord, be as jealous for you. Help us be as zealous in our pursuit of you And Lord, I pray that as we seek you with, even with fasting, may we find you very near and know the rich blessing of your reward. God, we thank you. We pray you'd be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.